this morning we're going to continue our learning about how Jesus has called us together and how Jesus sends us together. Uh, last week we talked about community and how Jesus calls us into his love and then for us to love one another in communion. So today I'm going to read this passage from the book of Acts, which is really the, the gold standard highlight reel of all community for all times. Uh, and I'm going to read it and then I'm going to ask you uh, some questions. And so as I read it, you should be, you know, ready. It's like a test. All right. Not really, but you'll, get, you'll be able to give your own answers and there are no really wrong answers, I guess. Uh, so it's from Acts chapter 2. Uh, and it's verse 42 to 47, and this is what it says. It says, they, the church of Jerusalem, this new church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is just a great picture of community, right? All right. So what are some of the... Y'all are going to be able to answer out loud. What are some of the things that you see in that picture of community that are exciting, good, positive, communal things? What are some of the things? Yeah. Food. Yeah, they're like eating together. It sounds so lovely, right? Every day, eating together. Yeah. They shared burdens, like all their financial situations. They were selling property to care for each other. That's pretty, it's a radical generosity to each other. Yeah, what else? They're glad about it. Yeah, there's. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> the people were happy. They weren't just like, oh man. Yeah. Totally. What else? There was like signs and wonders. That was, that was pretty cool. Yeah, signs and wonders. This like unexplainable God doing miraculous things in people's hearts and lives and physical bodies. Yeah. That sounds like a good community. That's way more than like a dinner supper club. What else? They're meeting at the temple. They like showed up. Yeah. Worship God. Yeah. That devotion word is so great. It means to literally bind yourself to someone else. Like you're bound. Their outcomes become your outcomes. Yeah. 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 A daily, constant community. Yep. Any others? Yeah. Adding numbers being added daily, people are being reached. Uh, what kind of awesome community is that? Like open doors, people coming in, settling in, getting to participate in all of this. I mean, it's pretty, I, I think it's really, this is a really exciting picture. Would you 
Agree? Like, this sounds like a really fun, awesome thing. It seems like they weren't just going to church, right, and going through these motions. It felt like they were, like, God's people kind of doing this radical thing. Uh, And so, in, in one sense, I feel like this sermon could just be me saying, all right, well, let's do it then, right? We all agree it's really good, right? We all say, hey, this is a positive thing. All right, let's do it. Let's just organize ourselves. Let's give everything that we have to make this happen. Let's work hard for it. Let's just have a deeper commitment level than we have now because, right, we're not doing this, right? That's like an assumption I'm making. So, like, why don't we just go for it? Like, let's get real serious now and go for it. But I don't know about you, uh, but I've tried. Like, I've This passage has meant a lot to me since I was like 17 years old. And I thought, and I've I've been trying for quite a bit, right? And I know that you're trying too. Uh, But it's really hard work is what it feels like daily, day in. and It doesn't feel like glad, generous hearts. Uh, It feels like really hard work. Uh, Sometimes communities get formed, and they're really beautiful for a while, and it's real easy, but then things start to fade, relationships get distant, it all becomes really weird. Uh, And so I wonder, what actually keeps us from being in this type of community? You know, is it because we're not smart enough to figure it out? I don't think so. We're pretty smart people. We're pretty intelligent These people, most of them didn't know how to read. We all know how to, like, we're smarter. We know how the world, like, the globe exists, right? We have way more intelligence, so it can't be that. Uh, Is it because we haven't said the right things? Like, I haven't instructed you the right way. I mean, that's a huge possibility. Uh, Is it because we need to tweak some structures and how to figure out time slots and childcare and a lot of the logistics, and that's what's holding us back? Uh, maybe it's because this is, whenever I finally got hard for me and I wasn't in college anymore, I thought, well, it's because we live in a Western, metropolitan, modern city, and this is an ancient Middle Eastern town, really, and they had a whole different set of circumstances, and so that's, that's why they can do it and we can't do it, right? That, that kind of resonates slightly, uh, but as I was saying, for the last 17 years, I've been proactively trying to create communities that look like this, uh, this Acts 2 picture of community. Uh, And I know that you've tried for a really long time, too. And I feel like it's not just logistics that keep us. That's really helpful, Joshua. It's good. We need spreadsheets. Yeah. That's like, but I've been in communities that have really good spreadsheets, really good Facebook groups. Uh, I also don't think it's culture. I don't think it's a modern society thing. I don't think it's a willpower thing, because I think a lot of people truly want to do this. It's not like uh, the person who signs up for the gym, i.e. me, in January, and then just pays them for several years. <laughs> I think like you are people who show up to the gym, and you, and you go through all the exercises, and then at the end you feel like, this isn't actually happening. I think the issue is just so much deeper than all of those logistical issues. Uh, today, I'm going to name three possibilities that I think are, are the ones, 
okay? And we're going to look at three different stories from the people that Jesus encountered. And through that, we're going to see how uh, there are these things that hinder us from living in a life of community that's so much deeper than just, you know, the Nike slogan of let's just do it really hard. Uh, They keep you and they keep me from expressing and redeeming and experiencing the kind of community in Acts 2. And those three things are minor wounds that we cope with, uh, shame, and then guilt. Maybe that's surprising to you. But those three things we often think that Jesus uh, deals with in the cross for us to be known by God. Like Jesus heals us, and now we get this good relationship with God. He deals with our shame, so now we can walk into the holies of holies, and we get to engage and know God. He deals with our guilt so that we can live forever. Like these are the three, you know, big things that they talk about outside with the kids that I'm sure you've heard about too. And that's all really good news, and that's part of the package of Jesus, that he redeemed your wounds. He deals with your shame and guilt so that you can be united with him. But Jesus also deals with all three of those things so that we can be in communion and relationship and unity with one another. And that is also a big part of this package of good news, kingdom of God coming to earth. And so we're going to talk about those three things. And they're all from the beginning of Mark. Uh, I'm not going to read each of these stories, but the passage will be up there so you can read it some other time and keep me accountable or whatever to make sure I'm not making up stories. Uh, But the first one's about these nagging wounds. It's the story of Peter uh, and his mother-in-law. What Jesus has done is he's called a group of disciples together. They've gone through all of these villages. There's been all these amazing healings that Jesus has done. He's taught all these wonderful things. And then he comes to Simon Peter's mother's house, mother-in-law's house, uh, and they're going to have a big meal and a time together. But this, this woman, this, the, the head of the house, uh, she's sick and lying in a bed. Uh, and Jesus goes to her, he grabs her by the hand, and he tells her, he says, arise. And then she gets up and she joins the group and she begins to serve. It's pretty great, pretty great moment. Mark describes this illness, though, as just this momentary kind of plight. It's like a fever that she's gotten that's just caused her to lie in bed and rest for a day. It's a disease that's not going to take her life, like she's not going to be, you know, going to the hospital or anything. It's just kind of taking her day. It's just a small, minor thing. She has a flu, a stomach bug, a virus not called COVID-19, right? Uh, She has the type of disease that doctors today heal by saying, hey, get some rest, get hydrated, take some Tylenol. This whole visit costs you 100 bucks, right? Like that's this sort of situation. In a few days, she would be fine. In a few days, she'll she'll be totally cool. She doesn't harbor demons like people Jesus has encountered. She isn't, she isn't paralyzed. This is really, this is no big deal. And yet, as soon as Jesus arrives, he goes to her, he takes her by the hand, he helps her up so that she can live a life and serve unhindered. Uh, a few years ago, I had, it was right when we moved here, I had thriving pain in my hands, and it lasted for months. Uh, at night, I would wake up feeling like someone had taken knives and just like stabbed them through my palms, uh, and I checked Mirella and she hadn't been stabbing me through my palms. My knuckles felt like I had punched walls. Uh, typing an email took like the strength and resolve to storm a castle. 
Uh, and you know, I love to write emails. Uh, tearfully, you know, I couldn't hold my children like I wanted to. I couldn't drive myself. Uh, and I couldn't hold a book or even the Bible without it hurting. Uh, on bad days, I would take ibuprofen nonstop. Uh, I took Ubers with strange, you know, people just to get to meetings. I dictated emails using Siri. Uh, doctors would prescribe me these medications that had terrible side effects where you're like, that's way worse than the cure. Like, you, you found it. You've identified it. Uh, who needs to have suicidal thoughts for hand pain? Uh, and so instead of that, I took this cocktail of supplements that I kind of, I think, worked myself up into thinking, this makes it a little bit better. Uh, but mostly, I don't think most people were super aware that that was going on because uh, I was coping and I was managing. I managed all of these different things. Uh, just like I manage my anxiety, just like I manage and kind of cope with my minor insecurities or my bouts of lust or anger, uh, I just managed. Uh, just like all the other internal wounds that I face, that you also face, uh, I just kind of lived through it. Uh, every now and then, uh, there would be these moments of outbursts, or the pain would be really hard, and it would keep me from uh, living life. Uh, in the end, though, uh, through those months of dealing with this pain, I was not living fully human or fully alive. Uh, and I think that's how it often is with us and our struggle in community. We have these whole uh, collection of small, minor things that we say, that's no big deal, it'll take me out for a day here and there, and I'll be, you know, get through it. Uh, sometimes, and I think this is, this is my big point, all right? It's not the monsters in our closets that keep us from community. It's the, the knapsack or the backpack filled of tiny, nagging things that keep us from living a life unhindered, that put us in beds and keep us away. It's that slight sense of failure, not the overwhelming one. It's the subtle belief that you don't measure up. It's the fleeting thought that you aren't worthy of these people. It's the tiny but regular bouts of anxiety that cripple you, not all at once, but a day-by-day -day basis. And we tell ourselves, it's no big deal. Uh, you know, I go to therapy monthly. I have these ways of self-medicating, but we're forever hindered. Uh, we forever can't seem to taste abundant life. So year after year, we kind of settle into more and more isolation. We share less and less of ourselves. Uh, we walk in community with a, hip, with a limp that we're really trying to hide and, and protect from everyone else, not knowing that everyone is carrying their own backpack of these things too. Uh, and then one day with my whole hands, I was speaking at this conference. Uh, the, became, the pain became really noticeable uh, by the people who were driving me around. Uh, they could tell that I was not you know, right. That's what it takes 24 hours with someone, and then they're like, this guy's got an issue. Uh, and, and at one point, there was this break. I was speaking all day, and there was a break, and this person was being super nice, and they came, and they offered me this cup of coffee. And I didn't want to be like a weird person, be like, no, I don't want coffee, because I really did want coffee. And my, my hand was hurting so much, I couldn't actually grab the cup and hold it entirely. And so the person gave it to me, and it basically fell through my hand and you know, spilled all over the stage. It's like one of those moments where, like, very publicly, like, that person is not well. 
uh, and it was awkward. People were cleaning it up. It was a really big mess, but I was really exposed. I kept, I kept speaking. I finished it out. And then the people who had been driving me around organized this moment like, hey, we're not going to let this guy leave and go to the airport. And they gathered around me, all of these people that really didn't know, and they began to pray over me that my hands would be healed, that I would uh, know this incredible thing that would happen. And church, family, uh, my pain left as they prayed for me. I was healed. Uh, If he can heal my hands, then he can totally heal your hearts. Uh, Pain that was just keeping me slightly from living my best life alleviated. I remember being on the airplane just like 40 minutes later thinking, is this a real thing? And I'll tell you, I haven't had pain like that in my hand ever since. It's been like four years. Jesus sees you, he goes to you, he helps you up, and he says, arise. Jesus changes your life from sick to whole. In this act, Jesus shows us that there's a complete other hope for humanity besides coping and getting through life, and that is complete healing. There's nothing too small or insignificant in our minds for Jesus to say, no, no, I want to redeem that too, so that this person can get up and walk. Uh, Once this lady's fever left, she got on her feet and she served other people. She served alongside other people. She doesn't Jesus doesn't just raise us up, but he gives us a whole life and a way of now interacting. She was going to lose this whole day and this whole moment with other people, but because Jesus healed her, that, you know, she was able to walk into community and live it out. And that's true for you too. And it's crucial, essential part of us walking into community is believing that Jesus can heal the nagging knapsack of anxieties and fears and issues that we're dealing with. The resurrection of Jesus defeats all of those wounds in our lives that we would otherwise cope with. And through all of that, we were enabled with this power to love and engage community together. No spreadsheet can do that, though it's important after the fact, right? And I mean this from the the depths of my mental capacity. Uh, There's no such thing as a lasting community without the ongoing healing of the Holy Spirit. So do not cope. Do not try to just get through. Jesus wants to raise you up to abundant life with others and with him. In the book of Acts, in Acts 2, that's what the picture is. They shared this awe and wonder of the fact that God was healing them and continued to heal them. And this isn't a, oh, they got healed one day and now they're totally cool. That they were daily experiencing signs and wonders to me lets me know that, hey, this, that some people are getting healed multiple times. Some people are experiencing God's redemption in their souls over and over again. And so that's the first thing, that God heals us from our, uh, our wounds that we just cope with. The second is shame. Uh, a little later in Jesus' life, he gets a visit from a, a man who's been overcome with this vicious, contagious disease that's left him banished to caves and isolation. Uh, his skin had welts on it. They oozed all of this. It's very gross. He had leprosy. 
And this man comes to Jesus, which is a complete breaking of the rules of how he's supposed to operate. It's like leaving quarantine on day two, right? He breaks through all of those things, and he comes to Jesus, and he doesn't plead, Jesus, heal me of this disease. Instead, he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. Uh, The Old Testament laws and then the, the sort of traditional laws that go adjacent to them Uh, That's just a little side note. There's huge books and scrolls that go alongside the Old Testament of like how people applied the Old Testament for hundreds of years. But there was this whole concept of cleanliness, laws about cleanliness. Some objects, food, people could be clean or unclean. And it wasn't a moral code like, hey, you're doing good, so you're clean, or you're doing bad, you're unclean. Uh, It was a cultural one. In several cases, it was about health codes for the good of society. But what happened was is that uh, anything that didn't fit in the parameters of a big, beautiful, thriving world was unclean. Anything that wasn't the way it was supposed to be becomes unclean. Some of the biggest you know, genre of these unclean laws are about dead things and sick things, uh, twisted things. And it also talked about the transitive properties of brokenness. That what would happen is, uh, if you touched, you know, a dead thing, you became unclean. If, if the sin and the brokenness of an external world got onto you, it made you also unclean. You entered into it. The whole, for me, if you can read all about these laws if you want, you get some kicks and giggles out of it. But the, to paraphrase the purpose is it reveals to us that brokenness and sin does not happen in a vacuum, but that sin and the death and evil that sort of covers this world leads to the exclusion of people. Uh, those who, got, who were, were made unclean, it was a tearing apart of them from a physical presence. The unclean people and things had to be taken out of camp. Uh, really hard, brutal reality. But it speaks to the fact that sin breaks a person and also sin keeps a person from living within their tribe and with their people. And that is the biblical definition and concept of shame. It's not embarrassment, it's this this concept that the sin and the brokenness out there has impacted and covered me. The person who betrayed you uh, doesn't just live with their sin, so do you. Because now you're a person who's been betrayed. And And you put that on like a shirt or fancy shoes and you walk through life with that from now on. The the abuse that you've experienced becomes part of you, becomes part of how you relate and engage with all other people. The vindictiveness, the lies, all of these sins fill your insides. The other person that, that sort of does that to you, they continue on with their life, with their own thing. But just because they've gone away or that moment was years and years ago, it is still on you. That is the principle and the reality of shame. It gets attached to your personality. It becomes part of the way that you see the world. And through that, shame isolates you. Shame becomes this invisible wall that separates you from other people because you can't fully go and engage in this person. You might as well be in a cave on the outside of town. 
And for the laws, many people that had uncleanliness, there was a path to inclusion. You could, uh, you could do some practices. A lot of times you just had to wait it out, and then you could come back in. You could worship. A lot of them had to do with sacrifices. If something died on your behalf, then you could be made clean again. But for anyone who had diseases like leprosy, the only path into inclusion again would be a full transformation of you. And so this man comes to Jesus and he cries out and he's not settling for healing. He wants to be full and holistically brought into the center of community again. He wants shame removed from him. He was pleading for the entire thing that Jesus offers. He's like a person protesting to the powers that be. His words are so great. He says, if you want to make me clean, because he believes that he has the power to do it. It's like people protesting outside the gates of the White House, where they're like protesting and declaring for human rights or things to be changed because they say, you have the power and the authority to do something right now. That's what this person is doing. He's there on his knees before Jesus saying, I know you can if you want to make me clean. Because this person had a life he was destined to live. He had a role to play in the kingdom of God. He had songs to sing in the temple with all the other people. He had children to raise or businesses to run or relationships to build. He had a life to live, but was entangled in the effects of sin. Everything he might be able to do had to be filtered through the reality of shame. And so the cry for cleanliness is a cry to be set free so that he can belong again. He wants abundant life without the residue of sin. And that is your story too. John Steinbeck in the amazing book, East of Eden, y'all should read it, uh, he says this. He says, nearly everyone has his box of secret shame that's shared with no one. I love it because he's just calling out what's true. We're all walking around with our own box of shame stuff put inside of it. And we don't share it with anybody else, but in a sense, it keeps us from sharing anything with anyone else. In each of our stories, somebody else must do something to us, in us, through us, so that we can be whole again too. And what Jesus does is he stretches out his hand and he touches this man, which is, Jesus is always touching people when he heals them. Touch is a real big part of it. But what makes this moment really surprising is when Jesus touches this person with leprosy, not only is that highly contagious, but by the transitive properties, Jesus now enters this person's exile and is unclean now. Jesus, like that touch is, is shockingly putting him way outside of bounds for the rest of community. And that's exactly what Jesus always does. He enters into our exile, he enters into our shame, he takes it onto us, he takes the category of being unclean so that we, through his touch, through his life, through his redemption, through his death for us, we get to be set free from shame. Oh, the grace of Jesus, right? That he enters into our terrible, broken space and he says, I want that. I want all of that. I'm gonna take it all on my shoulders. Even when we're confessing sickening sin that keeps us and debilitates us, he says, I deeply love you so much, I will be in your isolation. 
I will experience exclusion so that you can experience inclusion. And there's no greater picture than that of of, uh, Jesus on the cross, alone, belittled, dying for your shame. And all the sin and all the wrong and all the brokenness that has happened to you, all of the terrible things, all of the unkind words, all of the brokenness of culture and society that is on you, he dies in isolation so that you can be brought into full community, not just with him, but with one another. And that is what we see in Acts 2. We see people dedicated to the apostles' teaching and the worship in the temple. How did that happen? Jesus had set them and continually set them free from shame. What Jesus does with this guy right afterwards is he sends him back. Now that he's healed, now that he's clean, Jesus sends him, go straight into the very middle of the temple and sing your song with the priests and the other people. Sing your song of praise. Jesus puts us in the center of the holiest of communions through making us clean. So that's the second thing. He deals with our shame. The third one uh, is about guilt. Uh, this, this final story is a famous one. It's my first sermon I ever preached uh, story. So this is way better than it was then when I was 16. But uh, what happens is there's a group of friends who carry a paralyzed man to see, uh, to see Jesus so that paralyzed friend could be healed and made uh, you know, able to walk. And this person's paralyzed from, death, from birth, and he can't uh, enter the house. They can't get into the house. It's too crowded. So they go on top of the house. They dig a hole. They drop this man right at Jesus' feet so that he uh, can be healed. They're just so excited for their friend. And Jesus looks up at the friends, and they say, wow, you have really good faith. Pretty exciting. But then he turns to, them, to the man, and he says, uh, you're forgiven, like, I've, I've taken some friends and some children to the hospital before. How unnerving would it be to get into the ER while someone's, like, you know, very ill, and then the, the doctor turns to them and says, all right, let's get this guy some forgiveness of sins. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't lament uh, the medical system. He doesn't ask the paralyzed man, where does it hurt? How did this happen? Uh, Jesus doesn't even ask if he needs money or food. Jesus sees the greatest impediment to this person walking and living is spiritual, that he needs forgiveness, that he needs to receive forgiveness so that he can fully live. And I think, what kind of sin could this man have done from the mat, right? That, That Jesus would see him like, what kind of terrible sinner must he be? You know, you think... Uh, surely if he did sin, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, he's paralyzed. Uh, If he did sin, surely it was some sort of extenuating circumstances. I mean, can you imagine the hardships and the burdens and the bad things that were said and done to this person who's sitting on side of the road for most of his life? What guilt could this man possibly need receiving, uh, forgiving? Uh, The Greek words here, are explicit and literal. He says, your guilt is removed. That's what that word forgiveness means. Your guilt is removed. And while guilt is kind of a concept for our courtrooms, uh, that's not in the, the biblical concept of guilt is really different. 
It's more like a stain from a leaking fountain pen. You know, when you, I, I do that, and it gets from your shirt, and it kind of seeps out, and it gets on everything else, and it kind of is just there. It's transferred into everything else that you touch. Uh, guilt is also biblically like cholesterol. Uh, while you eat bacon and burgers and french fries, uh, and they've long passed your taste buds, and you've long gotten rid of them from your system, uh, the cholesterol sticks into your arteries and slowly over time clogs and clogs and clogs until your, life to li- your ability to live is diminished uh, or until you can't live any longer because the residue is all on the inside of your system. See, the act of sin doesn't stay with us, you know? You yell and cuss someone out, you cheat, you lie to someone, you move on, right? Like that's in the timeline, right? It's, it's way in the past. But the burden of guilt does not go away. It stays inside of us until someone liberates us from those rusty, rusty shackles. We can't participate in community because we're entangled by the sense of guilt, And I know this is true because when people fight or disagree and have conflict in community, they can't be back together in community until forgiveness has happened. It doesn't matter how many nice, positive things we say. Uh, I had a friend who had teenage sons who were fighting all the time, and they were disrespecting each other. They were really disrespecting my friend's wife. And so he had had enough. He's like, "These, these boys are selfish. And so he decided to punish them because... You know, that's what we do as dads, right? And so he said, all right, every time you disrespect or you're mean or you're rude, you've got to go out into the backyard and pick up a rock and put it in your pile. And he assigned different areas for them in their yard uh, where they had to build their own rock pile. And he said, at the end of the month, uh, you're going to have to carry your rocks all the way to the top of their hill. And they had this huge hill that went up the back of their house in Oregon. And so he thought, maybe this will keep them from, you know, doing this. But they didn't. Day after day, I mean, they just fought like there was nothing else. Like, like there was nothing else to do. They were mean to his mom. They were, like, terrible, just like teenage boys. And day after day, that pile of rocks, it went from just, like, this little collection of pebbles to a bigger and bigger mound of rocks. Because they were faithful. These people, they, like, they decided a plan they would do it. They're the kind of people, like, lose 60 pounds, you know, like, that kind of discipline. And so the day came, finally, for them to take this huge boulder up the hill, or a collection of rocks, and they filled backpacks up with them, and they put it on their, their shoulders, and they could feel in that moment what I'm describing is the pressure of guilt. It, their sins and the things they had done were way in the past. They couldn't even remember what each rock had done. But now, as with the backpacks on their shoulders and looking up the hill, they felt, I'm not going to be able to do this very well. This is going to take something out of me. And that is how guilt impacts your life, not just with God, but with other people. And just as my friends, were about, or the, my friend's kids were about to walk up, he stopped them, and he, and he took the backpacks from them, and he walked up the hill instead of them. Really good friend. He literally took the weight of the guilt that was pressing on their bodies and he put it on himself and they sat there and they watched their dad carry their burden up a hill for them. When we look to the, to the cross and the hill of Calvary, we're seeing Jesus carry the literal burden of all of our guilt up to the cross so that we could be set free. 
That is what guilt does to us, but that is what the relief of the gospel brings to us. While the leper needed shame to be made whole and to enter community, this paralytic person needed guilt removed so that he could walk. The force keeping us from walking in community and through life and relationships with one another is guilt as well. Guilt declares that you are who you are based on what you've done, you know? And that's how you know that it's keeping you from something. The, the phrase, I'm a liar, I'm vindictive, I'm a fraud like my father, I'm a cheat, I'm a coward, I'm an abuser. We hear these claims over and over again as guilt pressing us down. And we often, we attempt to get out of it by saying, uh, like, let's just have positive thoughts, where we say things like, well, I'm not that bad, everyone kind of does those things. Other times we think, uh, you know, we try to enlarge the good things of us. It's like, yeah, but I'm a really good dad. I'm more present than my dad ever was. Other times we compare ourselves to other people. We're like, well, I'm not as bad as they are. They're the real abusers, murderers out there in the world. I'm not like that. Still, sometimes we take on the, the role of, of being a, just a victim of circumstances. You know, I did all that stuff because of this emotion or this physical thing that's happening or this mental circumstance. But no amount of affirmative language can push away that haunting reality and understanding that our, our actions have entered the world and they've gone out into the world and they're now clogging the arteries of our own souls. With each passing day, guilt overtakes us. The sin or the stain of guilt sifts life out of us. It removes us from relationships. It builds walls. It keeps us from others. And so here Jesus looks at this person and he declares one of the greatest things that could be declared over anybody, regardless of their physical circumstances, and he says, your guilt is removed. And then there's this debate, and then finally Jesus says, what's harder, to forgive someone's sins or to have someone get up and walk? And then he tells this person, now you can get up and walk. This person needed to walk and live and have a physical healing, but he would never be able to live life without forgiveness. And Jesus' power to forgive comes the same power that he has to fuse broken vertebrae in an instant. The same power he has to heal that momentary fever the same power to defeat evil, the same power that can make someone become clean. Jesus has that power to make guilt removed as well. That is the third thing that Jesus does. So I want us to think about this Acts 2 picture in light of that, in light of the necessary ongoing need of the richness of the gospel to be applied to us regularly. Uh, I have one more question for y'all. If all of this is true, and it is true, like Jesus did this and he does this now, how does that change how you enter and engage community? If all that stuff's true, how would that change community life? Yeah. I would not. I would be more forgiving. Mm. Um, and I would expect forgiveness from other people as well. 
It's mm. good. You'd be, the relationships would be resilient because you would forgive and you would expect to receive forgiveness. Yeah. RMC, we got, we got really, that one question this last week around what's the opposite of forgive one another, we camped on that for like 30 minutes. It was awesome. Should have been a podcast. Yeah. What else? You would enjoy it more. Mm. 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 That's powerful. Preach, Allie. Preach. Yeah, we would. It would be so much more freeing and enjoyable because we could. Uh, we wouldn't be thinking, "I've got to fix this part of them." I think most of the time, most of our hang-ups with other people in our communities, like let's just be real, we have them, right? Uh, is because we think that they should fix themselves on their own power, and we're frustrated because they're not doing it. Or we're frustrated with ourselves because we think we should be doing something that fixes them. How great it is that Jesus is way more gracious and loving than we are. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, as we get, become aware of those things, it frees us uh, to be self-forgetful, as Tim Keller says in his book about forgiveness, right? Yeah. so good. And it gives you so much, I think it gives you freedom realizing that everybody is in deep need of Jesus's healing or cleaning. I think it gives me confidence to be like, yeah, I need, I need Jesus. Because I think sometimes it can feel like you're the only one instead of everyone's carrying their own box. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, through that transformation healing, it brings in even more closeness, transparency. Horizontally, yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, no, it just all went away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Totally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it breaks down those silos that we have of like, ah, oh, this Christian community is where we just talk about the spiritual things, but then we don't talk about family histories, relationships, any of those, and all that. Yeah, there's so much great stuff on family system dynamics where it's like, I don't know, like we're not all just hanging out, just us in the room. So are all of our parents and grandparents and sibling rivalries. They're also in the room too. Yeah, they're at the table talking to us also. Yeah, and every work situation that you've had that was sideways and like we are, we're so much more physical. And I think that's what makes, often people want to be present in community. And to be present in community, you have to realize that all of that other stuff is in the room and that Jesus redeems it too. Yeah. Speaking of that transparency and vulnerability stuff, are you ready to be a little bit vulnerable today? Uh, as we come and take communion in this moment, in this hour, uh, I don't want us just to come and take the bread and the juice and uh, say a quick prayer because I think that's really beautiful, but if you could just confess to the people that you're taking with saying, I need healing with things that I'm just coping with, or I need Jesus to deal with my shame, or I need Jesus to deal with my, shame, uh, my guilt, or you could say, I'm a three-person combo, like I need it all right now. Um, so you don't have to just choose one. But that's, what I, that's what I, your assignment as you go and take communion. Uh, and then we'll have some time to respond in singing and uh, you know, giving financially too in the little box or online. Uh, but also, uh, yeah, this is just a time to be transparent first before Jesus and one another. Uh, and then we'll, we'll respond in, in singing. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for creating community through the power of your life and your death and your resurrection. Uh, Jesus, I'm in such need of you dealing with uh, my shame so that I can love others and, and be in community. Uh, I'm in need of you dealing with all the ways that I feel like I haven't measured up. I need freedom in that uh, so that I can truly love other people with grace and mercy. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would do a powerful thing in our church, that we would have uh, a sense of your awe and wonders just about all the things that you're doing uh, horizontally with us uh, and in areas that don't count as spiritual things in our minds. I pray that you'd bring us back into this place uh, weeks and months from now just declaring how amazing you have been uh, in setting us free in our communities, in our DNA groups, in our lives. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Amen.